Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. How does that see you? It's good to know. Okay. So, Luther and the Jews. All right. I'm, I'm just going to talk, and at, at the point at which, in which I, I, I run out of uh, ideas and I can't remember what I want to say, I'll, I'll, I'll open the PDF of the book. I will tell you that until the end of December, the book is on sale at Amazon for 3 or $4, uh, the e-version or the e-pub version. And therefore, if you even like it a little bit, I'm not going to see much money from it. So really, this is totally disinterested. I mean, even if I get... 5% to $3, it's not, it's not worth doing a commercial for that. But if you did want to, uh, to, to go more deeply into it, then this book published by Fortress Press, Fortress is doing a big sale. Uh, I think, I don't remember until the end of November, I believe it was till the end of December. So, and you can buy it on Amazon or buy it on the Fortress website or buy it Barnes & Noble or wherever, just in case you're interested. I assume everyone here knows who Luther was. Is that something we need to address at all? You, your, your knowledge exceed, exceeds my own, my own uh, horizons. As you know, last year, there was a big hullabaloo about celebrating 500 years of the Reformation. And there were a lot of discussions and panels, and some of those discussions also included a very difficult topic, which has been under attention for some time over the past uh, several decades. Uh, scholars refer to the topic, they call it Luther and the Jews. That's how they called it. It's a nice way of discussing the problem of Luther and the Jews. What is the problem of Luther and the Jews? The problem of Luther and the Jews is that Luther, in all stages, Luther was a great man. He was a great exegete. He was a very rich uh, spiritual teacher. He was a man who had ultimately a very profound relationship and inner life. He's a man who was chosen to create a great revolution in the, in the Christian world and someone who, who has shaped the course of history. A first foremost translator of the Bible, whose work is used till this day. He was a man of greatness. And the guy was a hell of an anti-Semite. How to deal with the legacy of someone who, well, Lutherans don't have saints in the same way, so therefore he, he's not considered a saint, but he's considered a founding figure of, the, of, 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 a, partic of a very uh, predominant brand of, uh, of Christianity, uh, one that is present globally and very significant, today perhaps less so than uh, over many other periods, but still very a very significant Christian denomination. How to deal with the heritage of his anti-Semitism? 
do that, we've got to understand his anti-Semitism, put it in context, but also consider how the issue was addressed throughout different centuries. I want to go to the, to the recent stand. The recent stand, the question of Luther and Luther's attitudes to the Jews is something that has been discussed throughout, throughout these 500 years. Throughout this, this period, people have upheld, rejected, and mostly side, ignored it. In other words, it's not as though Lutherans were always anti-Semitic because of Luther. It's that Luther was very anti-Semitic. The Lutheran heritage moved in various shades, but very often did not follow his anti-Semitism. But things got really bad because Nazis, Nazism picked up on Lutheran anti-Semitism and turned into a state ideology, or at least used that as religious justification for negative treatment of Jews. I'm going to read you, I will read you something. I'll read you a quote from Alan Dershowitz. And this quote is representative of what a lot of people think of. It is shocking that Luther's ignoble, is that how you pronounce the word? I-G-N-O-B-L-E, ignoble? Ignoble. It is shocking that Luther's ignoble name is still honored rather than forever cursed by mainstream Protestant churches. The continued honoring of Luther conveys a dangerous message, a message that was not lost on Hitler, namely, that a person's other accomplishments will earn him a position of respect in history, even if he has called for the destruction of world Jewry. So some Jews have therefore gone to the extremes of calling for total rejection of Luther on these grounds. It's a problematic call in as much as it doesn't necessarily reflect the reality, and especially not that last sentence. If he has called for the destruction of world Jewry. Luther never called for the destruction of world Jewry. Luther called for destroying synagogues, confiscating money, expelling Jews, burning synagogues, destroying homes, a bunch of nasty things. But he didn't intend to destroy world Jewry. He just wanted them sent to the Turks. The, the, the ease with which one makes the move between one set of recommendations and claims that he made and what later became is problematic. On the other hand, various Nazi spokesmen at various points in time appealed to Luther as them realizing the problem of Luther. So it's not a problem-free issue. You can refer to this problem in terms of what one collection of essays in which this problem was discussed, tainted greatness. Got greatness, you've got the taint, how do you deal with it? Well, there are a few issues that relate to this problem of tainted greatness. One issue is how pervasive is the taint? How fundamental, how deep down does it go? If it really goes down to the very roots, then maybe you can't deal with it anymore. Is it, is it fundamental or is it tangential? That's one way of dealing with it. Another way of dealing with it is trying to, to distance yourself from it, a distancing which, of course, is itself dependent on the question of the depth of that tainted greatness. So as, uh, as you will confirm, uh, all the major Lutheran churches have issued apologies and distanced themselves from, from Luther. There have been you know, the, the evangelical... The evangelical uh, 
Lutheran Church of North America and Canada and South America and certainly the various uh, bishops' conference of, of uh, Germany, all of which are, they call it Evangelische, which is Lutheran, not in our sense of American evangelicals. They've all issued statements uh, uh, repudiating Luther's anti-Semitism. So you could say it's not really an issue for them today. But the problem is, if it's deeply woven into the fabric of his thought, then maybe we can't get off so easily. So that requires of us to think, how deeply does it go and how do we deal with it? One must add a couple of, of other points to offer context. How did Jews view, throughout the ages, view Luther? Did Jews always think like Dershowitz? The answer is no. Many Jews viewed Luther as a great model. Jews in German-speaking countries over the course of the 19th, 20th century, many of them upheld Luther as a great personality. They were willing to bracket some of his anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic remarks. What would make that possible? There are several things. One, as I mentioned earlier, not all successors and people who took part in the Lutheran heritage upheld the anti-Semitic views. Luther was a voluminous writer. He, he wrote tons and tons and tons and tons. Not everything you have to profile. Some things can, say, can stand on the shelf. You don't have to make much of them. For Jews, certain parts are very important. But the fact that they're important for Jews doesn't mean they're important for others. You just leave them on the shelf and you ignore them. And that's what happened for, 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 for decades and for hundreds of years. Many of the tractates weren't, weren't as prominent. Certainly post-Holocaust, Everything looks different, and then you conduct a much more extensive investigation of the matter. But things are even more complicated. There are two Luthers. Martin Luther and Martin Luther King? No. Martin Luther, and what's the name of your Luther? Luther. <laughs> From where? Where is that? Is it a space war or something? Superman. Superman, okay, yeah. So, no, not that either. There's the early Luther and the late Luther. Luther of 1523 and Luther of 1543. And there's a stark difference between the two Luthers. The early Luther, now we have to distinguish in talking about early Luther and late Luther between theological and practical. Luther, let me say something about the theological perspective where Luther is consistent and then compare that with the practical perspective where there's radical difference between the early and the late Luther. Luther is a professor of Old Testament. As professor of Old Testament, part of his translation, that's why he, he authors this translation of the Bible, and he's, he's a scholar, he's reading the text, and how does a Christian read the text of the Old Testament? Well, Christians read the Old Testament as talking about in light of the New Testament. So the key to understanding the Old Testament is the New Testament, and therefore the interpretation is all about Jesus and the church and, and continuation of, classical, of the classical tradition of Christian hermeneutics. He has one major problem with the Jews. They are, for him, he, he's got deep conviction, deep conviction in his reading, deep, deep conviction in his theology. He knows with great certitude of faith what Scripture means. Why are these Jews not recognizing the truth of Scripture? Why are these Jews failing to go along with what is so obvious? Why are they forever wrong? 
To us today, if someone says your religion is not of, of no value and you have no right to keep it, then we consider that anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic and abhorrent and against the spirit of America, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. If you go back 500 years, the prevailing reality is such that all the changes that came about in history, and to some extent, because humanity has learned the lessons of where those teachings go wrong, those lessons hadn't been learned yet. So to them, there's only one truth. There is no... Uh, the Catholic Church issued, about 15 years back maybe, uh, the Pontifical Biblical Commission issued a document on the Bible and its interpretation, and it offered the official contemporary Catholic stance that there's a legitimate Christian interpretation of the Bible and a legitimate Jewish interpretation of the Bible. And according to the legitimate Christian interpretation of the Bible, the Christians may, may read it in a certain way and, and, and consider the Messiah's come. And there's a legitimate Jewish interpretation, whereas they see it differently. We have to respect the multiplicities of interpretation. Couldn't say that in Luther's time. It wasn't an option. Didn't, you know, things hadn't, hadn't evolved to that point. So how could the Jews be so obstinate? There's something very wrong because they're, they're, they're getting it wrong theologically. Ultimately, he couldn't make sense of it. He, he so much couldn't make sense that when you, when you look at the Jews and you ask, well, why do they remain blind? The only answer you have is that the devil's keeping their eyes blind. Otherwise, why don't they see? So the demonization of the Jews is a solution to a theological problem that he can't figure out. He can't see Jewish faithfulness as a virtue. He can't see the fact that Jews are holding on because their tradition is such. What's more, Luther looks at Jewish history. He sees the conditions of Jews. And he says, no way could these be the chosen people. Don't they realize that God has given up on them? Look at their historical condition. With, with, with that, he has no choice but to reject the Jews on theological grounds. And from the perspective of Luther, early Luther and later Luther both reject Judaism on theological grounds. There's no significant difference. There is a huge difference in terms of practicality. In terms of practicality, early Luther was, as part of his attack on Catholicism, basically makes the point, Jews are the way they are because you put them in that situation. Give them better terms, they'll change. So he advocates things that are way ahead of his time to open jobs for them, to bring them in the society, to, to, about, to stop discriminatory legislation, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you give them the chance, they'll come around and they'll see the positive things. He go, the, the earlier tractate is called the Jesus was a Jew. And the affirmation is Jesus was a Jew and the Jews are the people of Jesus. Jesus came to the people of the Jew and therefore we have to, we have to honor them. And, and this, the attack on Catholicism is linked to a change and a recommendation for a positive view of Jews. Well, naturally Jews would be very happy with that. So the Jew, if, you, if you profile early Luther, the Jewish reception to Luther is going to be very positive because it's going to highlight all the good stuff of the Jew, that he had to say in his day relative to others. The later Luther, a tractate 1543 on the Jews and their lies, it's a whole other kettle of fish. That's where all these nasty recommendations are. So which Luther was remembered for generations? Well, the answer is it shifts. In a post-Holocaust perspective, people remember the later Luther. But throughout the generations, there were various periods in which people actually, his successors in, in various... Uh, Lutheranism, like Judaism, isn't one tradition. There are many schools and sub-schools and 
German pietists and various, various branches, many of them profiled the early Luther. And many of the teachings and many of the theologians remember the early Luther. And many of the Jews do. So suddenly Luther becomes a very good person. So adding complexity to the whole question of Luther is which Luther do Christians remember and which Luther do Jews remember? That nuance we lose in a post-Holocaust perspective, which accounts for why later generations have to take and end up are forced to take a greater distance from Luther. Nevertheless, the need to take this distance from Luther is 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 mitigated when you see a longer history. Well, within that longer history, it makes more sense to distance yourself from Luther because, in theory, now and here and here here's the challenge. So when contemporary Lutherans distance themselves from Luther, are they distancing themselves from the theological bias? That's impossible because it's so deeply interwoven with his theology and his biblical reading. Or are they distancing themselves from the recommendations of the later Luther? Usually it's from the recommendations of the later Luther, which still leaves open the challenge of theology and how to deal with his interpretation of scripture. Uh, and yet, so this is an ongoing conversation uh, within the Christian world, within the Lutheran world. Now, I come at this, I come at this in a very, from a very uh, unique perspective. Most of this conversation, Luther and the Jews, takes place as part of Jewish-Christian relations, takes place amongst Jew, broadly speaking, I think I'm right, 70% of Jewish Christian dialogue is Catholic. 15%, maybe 10% is Lutheran, and 15 or 20% is all others. So a little bit is Orthodox, a little bit is Evangelical, occasional things with various groups. But certainly the Catholics dominate the scene in the good sense because they invest the most, they're the most, they're, they're, they're most structured, they put out the most systematic documents. So overall, the number of people who are really engaging Jewish-Lutheran dialogue, yeah, particularly, is, it's a fairly small group of people or less reflects the size of the people who came to hear the lecture this evening. <laughs> yeah. um, that's why they say that Luther's a fair-weather friend, you know. <laughs> it's a bad-weather friend. Um, I come at this from another angle, not from the angle of Jewish-Christian interest in Luther. So I need to say a couple of things about my own work for you to understand how I arrive at this. A, I come at this as someone, I mean, Shmuley, Shmuley read off from something on my website uh, that describes who I am or what I do or whatever, and it says I'm the founder of the Elijah Interfaith Institute. What can you say to that other than Mazel Tov? Mm -hmm. But let, a, a word about what, what my work is. My work is to bring together leaders, even I would say important leaders, uh, and scholars of all world religions, and a large part of our work is to discuss what we require in order to advance relations between religions, and not in a, in a bilateral, but in a multilateral way. I invite everyone to go on our website, on our homepage of uh, elijah-interfaith.org. You'll see a clip there, one of our recent uh, initiatives, a clip of all major faith leaders, including one Lutheran one, the... Uh, uh, the head of uh, Antje Jacqueline, the head of the Church of Sweden, uh, thankfully a woman. Uh, the Pope, not so much a woman, uh, Chief Rabbi of Israel, Grand Mufti of Egypt, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, 
many, many, uh, some Dalai Lama, some important Hindu leaders, so really some of the world's most important leaders, all issuing a call for friendship between religions. This is representative of our efforts to bring voices that speak across many traditions. So our interests have been not to look only at bilateral relations between two religions, but to consider what do certain, uh, what do certain uh, challenges mean for relationships between religions at large. So when I look at Luther, and especially as I seek to make sense of the difference between early Luther and late Luther, I frame the question as what went wrong. What went wrong, of course, from my perspective. My perspective determines what's right and wrong, but our vantage point, 21st century, allows us to see things a little bit differently and to legitimate and support certain perspectives and certain views versus others. So what went wrong? What went wrong that Luther was anti-Semitic to begin with? That's you could say, is not so hard. Everyone else was. Luther wasn't more anti-Semitic than anyone else in his time. In fact, all the recommendations, all the negative recommendations he made were very contextual. There were barely any Jews. Most Jews had been already expelled from where he was. He didn't, uh, I'll talk about some of the, uh, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, uh, all the recommendations he made were things that people before him had done. So he's just asking to carry out policy that he's familiar with and, and are normal. And his anti-Semitism isn't as, a, maybe he's, he, he, he's, he's powerful, he's got rhetoric power, power but in some ways he's, he's contextual. What's unique about him is that, that one personality represents both perspectives of the good guy and the bad guy in one person over two points in time. That, and that he's unique. And that, that uniqueness is an invitation to ask what went wrong, not just in the broader way, but specifically to Luther and how things went wrong in relation to him. But to me, what went wrong is a broader question. It's because we all know that religion is a good thing, and because we all know that religion only generates positivity, because we all know that religions are instruments of peace, because at every interfaith encounter they tell us that, and because, and because, we, and because we all know that nothing bad could come from religion, which is perfect, and, be, and since everyone says their religion is perfect, then all religions are perfect, then basically we have to ask, so what went wrong? Why is it that we see certain things in religion that are bad? So the question of what goes wrong with one religion, or with one figure, with one situation, is a potential for teaching us about the broader problems that involve religion as such, and religion when it turns bad, and religion when it becomes negative. So Luther then becomes an opportunity to study the larger question, the larger dynamics that I, as an interfaith uh, theoretician and entrepreneur, encounter in relation to world religions as a whole. I come at it from a second perspective that makes this question interesting for me, which is why, and why I pose it in ways that nobody has posed before. Um, and I'm going to begin with a particular story, a particular incident, uh, in which I was very much engaged, and that allows me to share something with you that you will not see here from a U.S. perspective. The question of what went wrong is a question that applies to all religions, and to a certain extent is relevant today more than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, if 50 years ago we thought religion was on its way out, and then we thought that we were not going to see religious negativity, we're, on, we're seeing religiously-based negativity on the rise globally. Uh, certainly we see it in the Islamic world. We're seeing it in the Hindu world, which is absolutely shocking. Uh, 
if you go today on CNN's homepage for the last few days, there's been an essay up on how, it is, how hard it is to be a Muslim in India nowadays and the, and the gradual Hindu takeover of Islam. And I, I, uh, last week, uh, there was a front page essay on the New York Times about how in India some rock stars are basically uh, using religion to, to incite against, uh, against Hindus. So this is, this is becoming a very worrisome situation there. So the issue, and in the U.S., um, I'm not sure, you, you're from the U.S., I'm not, despite how I sound. So I don't think white supremacist ideology is specifically an outgrowth of Christian, of Christian heritage. Uh, I may, I may, maybe I need to be corrected on that. I think, I think it's a broader uh, sociological. I don't, I don't think it draws on Christian roots per se. Excuse me, Vikings. It grows on, it draws on Viking roots. Okay, but then it's not Christian, per se. What? Not Christian. Okay, so we've got. It's interesting. It's something worth checking out. So be that as it may, I'm not sure that what you're, we're seeing here with the rise of uh, extremism is necessarily religiously related, but globally there's definitely, definitely a phenomenon with religion going wrong in various ways. So I want to give you the Israeli angle of it, and this is an angle of Judaism that you will not recognize. You won't recognize it because probably none of you are Orthodox, and none of you are Israeli, and none of you are aware of that phenomenon. I was struggling in pre preparing this talk Alone, what exactly are you going to go tell these people? It's not really relevant for them. So this is why I want to profile this, this issue as a broader issue that has to do with religion going wrong globally, even though I'm coming at it from the specifically Israeli context. So here's the second issue that motivates me, that has led me to, to my thinking in this particular uh, book. So the story goes as follows. About four years ago, roughly speaking, a monastery on the banks of the Sea of Galilee was set afire. Uh, the monastery is known as Tabcha, or otherwise uh, known as the Church of Loaves and Fishes. Uh, it's at the north part of the Sea of Galilee. And the uh, two kids in their late teens set fire to it. They wrote on the they, they wrote red on white graffiti on the walls of the monastery. Uh, the words uh, that are taken from the second part of the Aleinu prayer, all, idol, all, all idols will be destroyed or all idols will be eliminated. And that was their justifying to, justification for setting the, fi the, the church on fire. The church actually, the church itself wasn't set on fire, but the courtyard was destroyed. Interestingly enough, an olive tree that was remained alive in the middle of it, which I and others have taken to be a great sign of, of, uh, of, of hope, of positivity. The, for me, this was a very shocking moment. First of all, because it was, had great international echo. I don't know if it's got as far as Phoenix. Anybody hear of that incident? No. I think it stopped, I think it stopped in the Midwest, the exposure. Uh, the, the second uh, issue is because I felt, so I knew them. So one the second point was that I knew that community. There's a Benedictine community that are headquartered at Mount Zion, and they, I, I count them among my friends. 
I was very friendly with the, with the abbot. We've done projects together. And, uh, and the third is because there had been a phenomenon, this you've heard of, you've probably heard about the price tag attacks, that J the Jews uh, attack Arab or Palestinian property in retaliation to this, that, or the other that the Arabs had done previously. It's a phenomenon that's been going on for about, oh, almost a decade. Attacks on mosques, attacks on home, and they call it tag mechir. People have come across that phenomenon? Yeah, people have come across that phenomenon. One person says yes, so people have come across that phenomenon. So um, the, I'm also part of a coalition of organizations that has put up a defense called, uh, instead of tag mechir, tag meir. So they play on the words. Uh, 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 so it's, it's, it's a response of light rather than uh, getting, getting a price for them. But this one was different. This wasn't a tag mechir kind of activity. This was now theological. Someone had taken a verse from a text of prayer that I recite daily. So now it touches me. It's theological. And they basically are making the following argument. These guys are idol worshippers. Our prayers call for their elimination. Come on, guys, let's do it. It doesn't work that way. Who, to, who says that it applies to them? And who empowered you to do it? And which rabbis are behind it? But no, those conversations don't take place. So I felt I had to act on this. And I did act on this. How did I act on this? I started a crowdfunding campaign for rebuilding the church. But the crowdfunding campaign that I started uh, was based on rabbis calling for, for paying, saying, because this has been done in the name of our religion, we need to correct what's been done and it's been harmful in the name of our religion. We will be at the forefront of calling for this. Then we went to chair of the Knesset. Who knows? Maybe after today's news, he will emerge as the next prime minister. Um, and uh, we launched the campaign with him and with his support, Yuli Edelstein, and uh, with these rabbis, some of them quite noted rabbis, all, of course, from the Orthodox Zionist sector. Um, I, don't, I think later on, uh, rabbis of other denominations joined, but it was very important because the, to bring in the Orthodox, because these problems grew in the religious Zionist Orthodox sector, so it was important to address that sector with the voice of rabbis. So suddenly some very prominent rabbis are calling for the building of the church. How could that be? So that brought about a public discussion in various internet fora and internet web and, and, and websites saying, wait a second, this declaration of Christianity as idolatry is not universal. There are other perspectives. And there's other rabbis even living today who hold that. And you have been taught, and this is part of the problem, you have been taught, there's an entire generation that has been raised in Israel on the declaration of Christianity as idolatrous, as Avodah Zarah, you should know that's not the only position. So it comes as news to people because nowadays it's so much the default position that there's been a flattening of the nuance and diversity within Jewish tradition so that that becomes the only tradition. So it was a gesture of friendship, practical support, but we raised a fraction of the costs that were necessary. We met our target, we exceeded our target, but that's because the target was very low and disproportionate to the real needs. So. We, we met the target, but the most important, we made an educational statement through that. So I'm very sensitive to religion going wrong. And I'm sensitive to religion going wrong in my country and amongst the, 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 the sector that I belong to. So looking at this question of what went wrong with Luther, I bring to it these two perspectives. One of my international work in looking at religious going wrong globally. And the other 
is the particular Israeli context and looking at how we are capable of doing to them what they did to us. Because what does Luther do? Luther calls for burning the synagogues. Well, these youth, these youth are going and burning synagogues and mosques. So where exactly is the difference between Luther calling for burning of synagogues and young Israelis? You're not supposed to hear this. Uh, 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 between Luther calling for the burning of synagogues and young Israelis calling for the burning of mosques? What's the distinction exactly? Uh, that's so uh, that's correct. That's correct. So there they use a political rationale. There are, by the way, some. It's a minority opinion. I mean, the the the, the default opinion that's that's nowadays applied in in Israel by most rabbis who don't care to study the matter any further is that Christianity is idolatrous and Islam is not idolatrous, and that would, of course, um, undergird your question. The, when they attack mosques, then they wouldn't put that kind of a verse up. Then they would just say, Tag mechil. then it's just purely political. As long as it's purely political, it's also harder for me to respond on a religious ground. What allowed a response in this case was because they were using real religious language. And you're right. They probably would have never put that, that, that graffiti up on a mosque. You're quite right. Yeah, Rabbi, the um, fact is we can't even get the ultra-Orthodox Chabad sometimes, not Chabad Orthodox, even talk to a Reformed Jew. Less, you know, we're not Jewish enough, or they're not Jewish enough. Are you a little bit of a rabbi yourself? No. Not Maybe you should be. I'm a you what? Klezmer. You're a klezmer? What do you play? <laughs> Clarinet. Clarinet? Yeah. I, did you bring but it? I, I play for the I play for all the things. You can't, you can't even get a woman to play in front of a, a, a to sing in right. front of a religious group. Let we me, have our own problems. So burning, you know, that's probably low down on the scale. That's just like, okay, what next? Yeah, and, and, and this is an interesting, interesting point. Um, in all the inter-Jewish polemics, there's never been a call by any ultra-Orthodox to set fire to a conservative or, Jew or a reform synagogue. I don't think that's happening. Right? I also don't think. Also, so, so actually, you've just drawn, well, my, you've well, drawn my attention to, to a certain limit. Let me, let me just finish my thoughts. So either, either because the overall attitude of of religious freedom in this country will exclude that possibility, or because they understand that with all differences we're Jews and we're not going to attack each other. So, I, and it's probably the latter with some tinge of the former. Well, there were Jews that were throwing rocks at other Jews when they were walking the synagogue in Israel. Yeah, those were friendly rocks. I'm talking about. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> you anything I mean, you're a musician, so you know about the rock and roll. So there's, 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 all, there's all kinds of rocks. Um, so that's why I say this question is particularly Israeli and at this point in time hard to imagine in the US but you know 30 years ago it was impossible to imagine it in Israel and 30 years ago it was impossible to imagine the world the way it is and 30 years ago it was impossible to imagine anything and therefore maybe we need to be vigilant and recognize problems before they arise and not say to us will never happen. 30 years ago, nobody thought that, that, that rabbis would be carrying their cell phones on Shabbat because they're afraid of being attacked, let alone having, having uh, uh, guns in the synagogue for protection. It would have been un, 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 unthinkable. Everything is changing so fast. How do we know that the tomorrow an, an, an ADL-type Jewish defense 
group is not going to start attacking. Things could escalate. You never know how things could go. So you do have to study the lessons of history to know where things go wrong. And we know that in Israel, things are starting to go wrong. So with that in mind, I start to tackle the topic of what went wrong with Luther, not in order to accuse. Enough people have done that. He's had his accusation. The game have apologized. Let's move on. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I study this in order to ask, if we can figure out what went wrong there, we can learn the lessons for other places. In other words, the greatness of Luther is such that he can serve as a teacher for us in his failures, in his shortcomings. Great people have great failures. We can learn from those failures if we're willing to, to recognize some greatness in them. So that has led me to identify a series of factors and to see how those factors come together to produce what I call the Luther model. The Luther model is the different factors that come together and in their aggregate, they, they function as a model of negative religion. Religion goes wrong in relation to the other. And what I'd like to do now is to review those factors in relation to Luther. And what I'll do, and I think that's the right thing to do right now from a pedagogic point of view, I will, rather than list the full list, I'll go by them item by item and do the Luther side and then do the danger side today. The Luther side and the danger side today. And to show that we're not immune from such dangers and that no one is immune from such dangers. And therefore part of, the, part of what scholars and thinkers have to do in relation to history is set before people the full picture, invite them to reflect on it, and thereby increase the sales of their books. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's review the different elements that go into what I, what I consider to be the Luther model. Well, the first, the first one, and one that I, uh, one whose, whose, whose significance I can't, I can't exaggerate, is the knowledge of the real other and real relationships. Now, of course, there's an assumption there. There's an assumption that if you know someone, someone for real and you have real relationships, it'll do, do good. In theory, theory, you could know someone and discover the guy, the guy is really, is really or, or, or this group is, is very problematic. And so there's an assumption that getting to know people is, is a good thing. I think overall it's a tested assumption, but it's not a, it's not a foolproof method for avoiding negativity in relationships because potentially you could know people. It'll either, it'll either strengthen... Uh, various prejudices you have, or lead to negative conclusions. Again, you, you, our, our, our knowledge and our view of things are structured in our perspective and our consciousness, and potentially you could have something and draw the wrong conclusions from it. Luther had no, no meaningful relationship with Jews. Where he lived, there were very few Jews. They were never part of his world, not part of the circles of his friendship. Just, 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 just to illustrate the importance of friendship and relationship, and I, and, I, and I reference again this campaign on friendship that we've done, the, and, and the call for friendship and how important it is. I meant, no, I didn't, no, I mentioned that in, in, the, in, in the interview with Rup Shmuley earlier today. Uh, as you know, Christians, I, I mentioned earlier the new document of the Catholic Church on uh, Jews and their teaching and, the, and, and uh, 
this document of the Biblical Commission that I mentioned earlier that came out, I believe, in 2002, uh, it, it comes at the tail end of a series of documents that was launched by the, by the landmark declaration Nostra Aetate in 1965, in which the Catholics have changed their theology. And while other denominations have not issued similar, uh, I very often ask Lutherans, why don't you? And they say, because the Catholics did the work for us. And not, and not, and not in any way detracting from the system. Mainline main line denominations very often rely on some of the work done by the Catholics and just go along with it in this particular issue of Jewish-Christian relations. What led to the change of the Catholic Church in its relations to the Jews? Well, there's no doubt in the same way that this kind of exercise of reflecting and leading to repentance was a consequence of the Holocaust, also, also Christian revisiting of their attitudes was a function of the Holocaust. But that's not enough because not all parts of the Christian world were caught up in the Holocaust. Holocaust was a European phenomenon. The Catholic Church is a universal, is a universal church. It didn't have to be that way. Um, one of the factors that led to it was the role of the American bishops in the Second, world count, in the Second Vatican Council. And the role of the American bishops was heavily influenced by the collaboration between Jews and Catholics in social situations in the U.S., which had built relationships that then spilled over into the recommendations into Rome. In other words, getting to know them, having friends, having relationships, ended up being a major factor in the shift in relationships between Jews and Catholics, ultimately leading to changing, changing Catholic teachings. I think that's a very interesting illustration of, 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 of long-term effects of building social relationships. Or to offer other illustrations, again going back to the interview that I think is on, already on, on, on your Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, what else? And, and, and doesn't other... Yes, of course. How could I forget that? <laughs> and, and, and all other possible platforms. Um, various places in the world have relations, say, between imams and, uh, and priests or interfaith councils. And there are several recorded instances where situations in which violence started to emerge between religious communities, it was stopped by those leaders because of their personal friendship and relationship. So, so personal relationship, on the whole, historically does tend to have that value of averting the rise in, in violence, etc., now, given that, what does it mean to not have relationships? Luther has no relationship. Luther did have contact with the leader of the Jewish community at his time, Yossel of Rosheim, but it wasn't a friendship. It wasn't a relationship. It was nothing like what we, what, what we, have, what we have here today. Um, let's circle back to those, to those uh, Jews who are in Israel today. How many Christian friends, or Muslim friends, do they have? One of the prices we pay for a Jewish majority is that we lose interest in relations among, with others. In the United States, it's unthinkable because Jews as a minority have to have friendships with other people to survive. You can't be in a ghetto. Even, even the ultra-Orthodox living in Williamsburg or wherever it is, they're, 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 they're in a part of a broader society and they know how to comport accordingly in terms of social relations, in terms of everything. Jews, on the contrary, in, 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 uh, uh, in Israel, 
the secular, well, first of all, the different, the different communities don't intermingle in the way they do here. There are places where contact exists. There are mixed cities like Jaffa. See, like Nazareth, Jews and, uh, and Arabs are apart. Uh, there are very few mixed cities and their efforts to keep them apart. Because in Israel, it's not about religion. It's about national identities and, and con con conflicting and competing national identities with political claims. And majority-minority relationships are much more complex because they go to the heart of the, of, of the status of, of the state. And because political concerns eclipse religious concerns, the, the coexistence of Jews and Christians in Israel is a non-issue. It's not an issue because uh, Arabs coexist and there's nothing to do with the particularity of the religious identities. So for Jews, they, they, don't, they, don't have, they, they, they don't got no contact with, with Christians. Yeah? What about with Greece and the IDF? Now that's a good question. That's a very good question. The question was, what about Druze? Because Druze, Druze serve in the army. Um, I would say on the whole like this. There's a much lower sense of distance and otherness with the Druze, a much greater degree of sharing. The army serves as a greater unifier. I don't know if that translates to long-term friendships. I mean, you know, we'd have to go uh, throughout Israeli society. At the end of the day, the Druze remain a the, the Druze and the Jews are still autonomous and segregated. But I do believe that you. That's a very, very perceptive question. Because the, 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 the boundaries are significantly lower because of that melting pot of Israeli society, which is the army. Thank you for that observation. Can, can I ask a question on the same note? Yeah. So if you take this whole scenario to like Yugoslavia, you had Muslims and Christians and Jews all living together in right. all these countries in one major thing. Right. This political upheaval come, and now their neighbors are killing each other. The people who knew each other, the Muslims wouldn't talk to the Christians. All of a sudden, you have dividing lines. This is after everybody knew each other, and there were friends, and then they wouldn't speak to each other. I don't know the answer on that well enough. I know that um, last week in Ynet, there was a piece about the Jewish community of Sarajevo and the ongoing relations through generations between Jews and Muslims in Sarajevo. And I sent a note to my friend who's a member of our Board of World Religious Leaders, the former uh, Grand Mufti of Sarajevo, Dr. Mustafa Serich. And I sent him this link. And he says, yes, this is how, I mean, obviously I sent him in Hebrew, but I guess he knows how to use Google Translate, or he could just tell from the pictures what it was. And he said, yes, this is how it is with us, with us, with us in, in uh, uh, what's the name of the country? Sarajevo is part of what? Bosnia. 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 Thanks for your help. Fine, 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 fine. Bosnia, we got it. It's Bosnia. I'm getting old. So, uh, so he says. So, other parts of of the Balkans ha have a different history, but Bosnia. They pride themselves on having succeeded in maintaining that, and the tensions between religion and 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 and, and politics are very complex in that part of the world, even inter-Christian. Some parts are Catholic, some parts are are orthodox, and, and it's not even only about Christians and Muslims in those particular things. And, you know, this, this issue of until yesterday they were friends and when it turns wrong, I think that's a very interesting and challenging question. It's a different question than the one we have here. And, uh, let me just finish the idea. In other words, there the question is, what are the forces that can turn today's friendship into tomorrow's enemies, right? That's what happened to Munkach, Munkachevo, in the U well, in Czechoslovakia at the time of World War 
too. My mother-in-law, Hetty, was telling us she was neighbors, friends, didn't make a difference, Christian, Jews, no problem. And as soon as the uh, Hungarians came in, all of a sudden their house was taken over by their own friends. They couldn't be uh, spoken with. There was all these deep friendships over years. I mean, you know, there was this part of the community for 30, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 years. All of a sudden, the political companies are friends, and now all of a sudden they're being kicked out by their own neighbors. So the answer is, where is it coming from? Yeah. So what's the answer? Where, where is it coming from? I don't know. Is it politics? Is it the entry of an, is it, is it, is it the entry of an, external, an external element into the mix? Where is it coming from? Yeah, but yesterday they were friends. Why is the fear entering suddenly? So I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer on that, and I'm always happy to learn from other people. But my situation, the, the model I'm describing is a little bit differently, and that's the model of no contact. And that's certainly one element, and that's one element that characterizes contemporary Israeli society, no contact, no contact and, no, and no real relationship. Now, what that means, no relationship, is also means no, first, no, no first-hand information. So... So what you don't really know who you're dealing with. You don't, leave, don't know who you're dealing with, and you're dealing with imagination. That was true for Luther and the Jews, and that is certainly true for, for contemporary Jews and Christianity. I don't know what it's like in the other denominations. Orthodox are characterized by a shocking, shocking level of ignorance of Christians and their teaching. Uh, Orthodox, and this is, I think, also true of United, of United States and all of Israel. They're basically, they're stuck in the Middle Ages. They're repeating things that are, that are said there. Very few of them move beyond the Middle Ages to, in any way, attempting to integrate contemporary Christian teachings. Give an example of a middle, of a middle idea that would still be helpful. Huh? No, no, that's not the that's not the question here. Uh, well, first and foremost is the refusal to recognize changes in Christian teachings, where they refuse to. Re, There's just a refusal to admit them, so they're holding on to old teachings. Um, I think nuancing of theology, for instance, just to give an example, there's been a ton of work done by Christian theologians throughout the age on nuancing what, for instance, the Trinity means, and Jews would 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 hold on to very. Uh, simplistic understanding of, of, of Trinity that doesn't take into account the self-understanding of, uh, of Christians. I think that could be an interesting example of the refusal to, to engage because you don't want to learn from within. You want to know only as much as you need for purposes of polemics because you need the polemics for identity purposes, for purposes of maintaining uh, boundaries within communities, but not... Um, and I'd want to think some more about what are, what are, what are extreme cases where uh, people, say, but I mean, I see this all the time. I mean, uh, uh, there's a rabbi in Israel, Rabbi Shlomo Aviner, who, who constantly references Christianity. Every time I, I read, I read what he has to say, I shudder at how out of step he is with reality and how he won't acknowledge contemporary reality. So, um, I'll will stop with with those with those two two examples. So so that's one thing then: lack of contact, lack of knowledge. But actually, to that can be added. Uh, uh, a former, uh, uh, a further element. Uh, let me circle down. 
Uh, maybe I should, I should add something at this point. When you don't treat the other as a person, the other becomes a, a construct. I've been struck by how central Christianity is in Jewish education in Israel. Not because they teach something about Christianity. They teach nothing about Christianity. But Christianity is the straw man against which you construct your religion. So texts that are taken from the Middle Ages that profile some polemical point are amplified and become the prop against which the specific faith of Judaism and its correctness are highlighted. So this is a pretty broad phenomenon that you see in Jewish education because if the other isn't a real person, it's, it's an imaginary reality you construct in relation to that. And that process always takes place when there's no real, when there's no real contact. So that's, that's part of it. Now to that, you have to add the problem of inaccurate information. Luther, Luther suffered from the fact that he was severely misinformed by his informants. There was one particular, we call the Nidaj Meshumid. Remember what a Meshumid is? A Meshumid is a Jewish convert to another, to, to another religion. And some, some of the people who converted from Judaism to, other, to, to, to Christianity served as informants of Judaism, and very often they brought correct information, but also a lot of wrong information. From his purposes, he doesn't know what Jews do. Here comes this convert from Judaism, reports curses of Christians and all kinds of negativities, and there he, get, he gets his information that Jews hate us. So relying on information of bad sources is part of the problem that leads to a negative view. Jews today continue to rely on not just lack of personal, but as I, as I gave earlier an example, the lack of updated current information. I'll, I will give you, I will give you, um, no, I won't give you because I already gave it and I want to move on. Okay, so this is, this is uh, um, one aspect of knowledge relationship. Next element is element of hurt. Hurt. Personal hurt, offense, personal trauma, personal fears. It was reported to Luther that Jews refer to Jesus as the toloi. The toloi is the one who was hung. That's true, Jesus was crucified. But when believing Christians speak about the crucified, it takes on a positive ring because the crucified is the one who saved him. And when Jews speak about the one who was hung, the music is derogatory. And he heard that reference. He was very hurt by it. He was hurt because he cares deeply about his God. And if his God is referenced as the one who was hung in a contemptuous way, he felt a sense of indignity and offense at, at the attitude. Luther heard, uh, you know, in the early centuries, Jews had to defend themselves against or set up an alternative narrative of Jesus. There's a book that was authored in the early centuries. The exact date of composition isn't clear. The book is called Toldot Yeshu, the, the History of Jesus. It draws on a tradition that was very old and 
can be dated back to the first century of Jesus the magician. So don't tell me that he was a great man of God, son of God, prophet. He was a magician. And there's a counter-narrative that is very, very old. It, it antedates the, uh, the Toldot Yeshu tradition. And the Toldot Yeshu picks up and it becomes part of that particular tradition, the, the Jesus the magician tradition. And so th some of the things that are stated there, they include attacks on the virgin birth. They include Jesus uh, doing magical tricks, being overcome by the Jews who have greater power. It's, it's, it's certainly uh, not a very flattering description of the God you love and adore. So he's upset. Here, look at how the Jews are portraying my God. Now, Add to this the following. In Europe, it's much easier to give. You don't, you don't have gypsies in America, do you? Not really. Not really. You don't have you know, the Roma people. The Roma people are in, in, in Europe. And I go various places I go in Europe. I see them. And you recognize them. They're sitting on the streets. They're begging. They look different. They're not part of society. Now you see them. Now you don't not integrated, on the road, and of course they steal your property. Play music. Huh? Play music. Play music, and of course they steal your property. They're <laughs> yeah. great musicians. Okay. See, you, you, uh, I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. It's true. It creates a sense of otherness. So a group that lives on the margins of society. Okay. The Jews in Luther's world were what Roma people are to most civilized Europeans today, a shadow people living on the edges of society. No contact, no connection, no relationship. You're afraid of them. But Jews are also educated. Jews are also doctors. They come into our home to treat us. And you know what they do when they treat us? They actually poison us. So here's another motif. I guess, you know, he picked up an ancient patriarchal uh, hypochondria that goes through, runs through the entire Old Testament. Whatever hypochondria he had or whatever fears he had, he was always afraid the Jews were out to get him and to poison him. So not only did he live in a state of hurt, psychologically, he lived in a state of fear. So these Jews that he's against, he's also afraid of. And Thomas Kaufmann, who's the leading historian of Luther, documents this attitude of fear that Luther has in relation to the Jews. Now, if we're talking about this complex of hurt, offense, fear, take those words, take them out of context, and flip them into a Jewish view of Christians, we got thousands of years of that. We have what to be hurt about, we have to be what to offend, we have to be what to be afraid of. So it's in the attitude, it's in the collective attitude, it's in the collective attitude of rabbis that I stay here still here teaching today who are so connected to that tradition of fear, hostility, etc., etc., that they continue to echo that particular tradition. So here's a psychological element. The first one we say was sociological. Here's a further one that you could reference as a more, as a more psychological. And this psychological... Now, add to this a further component. So we have so far sociological distance othering, psychological fear and otherness. They will do this to us. 
Now, if, if we're looking at those broader concerns of when, religious, when religion goes wrong, you can almost take that line, they will do this to us, and think about all the situations of what Hindus are saying of Muslims, they will do this to us, and other groups are saying they will do this to us, and how fear and othering end up joining that. Now, in this case, add to that the theological differences. As much as Luther's anti-Judaism was nourished by his reading of scripture, Jews have as much negativity towards Christianity in their own scriptures, in their own approach. Now they get to make a choice. They get to make a choice whether they want to uphold and continue a negative attitude or to pick up on other voices. But there's certainly, in the history of Jews and Christians, both sides have articulated very negative perspectives. Those perspectives can have to do with the nature of idolatry, referenced. Uh, so if, if you argue that Christians are idol worshippers, that's not a very flattering view of them. Luther argues that Jews are idol worshippers. Think about just look at the irony. Luther at certain points argues that Jews are idol worshippers. Jews are arguing that Christians are idol worshippers. Arguing that someone is an idol worshipper is a way of delegitimating them religiously, which is then compounded with all the other psychological and sociological factors. And then you get a, a, a this goes again to, back to the interview today. So the whole issue is escalated to the level of truth. It's no longer a level of attitude, but it's a level of truth of how, of how, uh, how, these, how these groups uh, uh, interrelate and how, uh, and how they connect. He goes back to the story of the golden calf, and he reads the golden calf as, 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 as a headquarters for Jewish idolatry. But think about it. If they're being controlled by the devil, and it's the devil who's, who's obscuring them, then basically they're tied to the devil. So that's a form of idolatry. And do you think that the, uh, the demonization stops with Luther? Jews, not, I'm not talking about inside Christianity. Jews, Jews have demonized Christians. Jews have demonized non-Jews. No, that's not, that's not demonization. You know, that's not demonization. That's, that is, it's, I can recite the second part of the Elena because it's, it's expressing a hope that the whole world will come to know God and idols. That leaves it open. What are idols? And who are those idols? Demonization is to say, we come under God, you come under the, under the forces of darkness. That's a move that's made in some of the Kabbalistic texts. And those Kabbalistic texts are then upheld by later authorities, including authorities that I admire greatly. I have some trouble, I very often have trouble negotiating some Hasidic texts. I absolutely admire the authors, absolutely admire their huge sanctity, their, their godliness, and yet they perpetuate views of others that I found, again, in books that I greatly admired, because the history... History comes in and reflects on the theological level, level the social tensions, leading to a theoretical articulation that is very problematic when you look at it from the perspective of the, of the reciprocity and mutuality between the two. So demonization, idolatry become... Now, going back even more fundamentally, Luther argues that Jews have no legitimacy to their faith. Well, Jews also argue that Christians have no legitimacy to their faith. In fact, there's a fundamental argument that there is no room for any other religion. Jews, non-Jews, they can perform the seven Noahide commandments, but they can't have another religion. So either they're idolatrous or they're another form of religion, or whatever the criticism may be, it's downplaying the legitimacy of the other, which is feeding into the strangest, which is feeding into the distance, which is feeding into the fear, 
And this, in turn, then opens up to the next, to the next level of concern, which is the concern for identity. Now, when Jews are afraid of... Uh, I'm going to leave some for your $3 investment on Amazon, okay? Uh, uh, when, Jews, when Jews are afraid of question, of quis, Christians, what is their biggest, what is their biggest fear? What are they going to do to us? Convert us. There you go. Convert us, okay? No, no, no. This is, uh, you don't think like a Jew for some reason. <laughs> Jews are not afraid that Christians are going to kill them. They're afraid that Jews are going to kill them spiritually. And that uh, you heard, the key, the key fear is conversion. They'll convert us. They'll convert us is much worse than they'll kill us. And they have good reason to be afraid. We've got, we've got millennia of history of attempted Jewish conversion. I even heard that uh, here in Valley Beit Midrash, there was a group of Mormons that, with the blessing of Rup Shmuley, not so much the blessing of Rup Shmuley, were handing out their books in a very clever, what seemed to be missionary move. So this missionary thing and the protection of identity is an ongoing, is an ongoing challenge, ongoing threat. What about Jews trying to convert Christians? Did Jews try to convert Christians? I don't see that so much. But I don't see that so much. You know what? Luther saw it. And that part of what fed his fears and part of what ties into this model and its complexity and the creation of the reciprocity. Where did he see that? Well, it could be that with a certain improvement in social conditions, some Jews were emboldened to start preaching Judaism to the Gentiles. The phenomenon that we know today as Seventh-day Adventists already existed in his days in a group called Sabbatarianism. And there was often some confusion in, uh, uh, in Luther's mind between Jews who, uh, uh, Christians who simply observed the Sabbath or, or, or who, those who wanted more broadly to Judaize the tradition. And he was concerned for the purity of Christian, te Christian teaching and the possibility that Christians would compromise their identity. So this issue or this concern with compromise of identity ended up functioning as a two-way street. So you're afraid for protection of identity on both sides. Suddenly you look at it, it's amazing. All these factors there, you line them side by side. You see a parallelism between, between, the, two, between the two sides. Moreover, you see it not only in Jews and Christians, you see it, what, what's, what's going on between Hindus and Muslims? Hindus are afraid for their identity because Muslims have been very aggressive in their missionizing his efforts throughout history and today. Why in India today is there such difficulty between Hindus and Christians? Because they're afraid of missionaries. So the problem of mission plays into the problem of distance, into attitude, into fear, creates a complex, finally erupts in violence. So the, the situation, these elements come together in these different contexts in the same, in the same way. Um, there's one last element that I want to draw out in this similarity, and then one more element that I want to, I want to, I want to reject. Luther had a very strong apocalyptic orientation. He had a strong orientation that he considered that he was living in the end of days. Some of the extremeness or consistency of his thinking was in that it 
was in the end of days now that things are going to come to light and the grand showdown is going to take place. The youth who set fire to churches and many of those in the sect, I'll put it this way, the sector in Israel that is most active in negativity towards other religions is the one that is most highly conscious messianically. What's the connection? There seemed to be a sense that when you have a strong messianic consciousness that the messianic reality is about to be fulfilled, you then consider <coughs> it's time for the showdown, getting things right, and, and we can get things right in relation to others. It, the element may not exist on its own, but it's compounded with all the others. So I don't know that this is true for all situations in which religion goes wrong, but it certainly is a contributing factor, both in the case of Luther and in the case of contemporary Jews. There's one element that is very often cited in literature on the subject, and that following Thomas Kaufmann, uh, I was sitting on the plane here this morning, and the woman next to me, where are you going? going to, I'm going to uh, Phoenix, I'm going to talks. Oh, you're an expert. So I, told, so I told her, no, I'm a very learned dilettante. Uh, so as a learned dilettante, I rely on the scholarship of others. And th this, this, uh, this particular author, he, and, I, and I worked this out with him when I read his work, and, he, and I said, that means that basically you reject this common thesis. And he says, yes, I do reject. Well, what is the common thesis? The common thesis of what led to the change of heart in the, between the early and the late Luther was Luther's disappointment the Jews didn't accept his outreach program, didn't listen to him, didn't convert to Christianity, and therefore, as a consequence, he turned against them, reversing his earlier positive perspectives. So that view is rejected because it's inadequate for accounting for the change in Luther's views. Luther was a theoretician. He wasn't a pragmatist. He never set out on a mission to the Jews. And his recommendations didn't include what the Inquisition had done, I don't know, what, 200 years earlier? No, less. Uh, less than 100 years earlier. Less than 100 years earlier, 50 years earlier. You know, either, either accept Christianity or we'll, or, or we'll expel you. He didn't say give them that choice. And it wasn't about, okay, you didn't, you didn't accept my way of bringing you to the truth in a nice way, then accept it the hard way. And if you don't accept it the hard way, then, then, then they punish. No. So it was, it was... That goal was to convert them, though. The what? The goal of the Inquisition was to have them convert. And that was not Luther's goal. Had it been Luther's goal, it should have been much more prominent than it is, and therefore it can't account for the change of, of, of perspectives. That's the point. In other words, the, 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 this complex of factors that we spoke about seems to be a much more objective, neutral, independent cluster of factors than the attempt to simply explain Luther's change of heart based on the fact that he made a move towards the Jews, but the Jews didn't make a move towards him, which is the common explanation. So you look at the sum total of it, and you say, well, this is a really interesting lesson. Because if you look at Luther and you look at all these elements, then and all too often, you can't reduce it to one element. You can't say it's because of this or because of this only. It's rather this and this and this. And so the sociological goes with the psychological, goes with the identity, goes with the theology, and each reinforces the other, and, they, and, the, and, and each tightens the other. And when all of them come together, you end up with such a sense of othering that it finally erupts in violence or in recommendations for violence. 
And this is something that can happen to anyone and anywhere. And God willing, it won't happen here. I, I want to say so soon. God willing, it won't happen here ever. But it's something that people of religion have to... It's in the news every day somewhere in the world. And therefore, it gives us a certain uh, analytic ability to see all of it through this lens and to gain perspective. And it also amounts to an invitation to friendship, to understanding, to correct information, to overcoming our fears, to preserving our identities in ways that are not um, based on fear, but based on a positive appreciation that may, leaves room for, room for the other. All, so bad religion is a mirror for what good religion should become. And studying where religion goes wrong is an invitation to practice religion in the best possible way. Thank you. Questions? I have one. Yeah. Um, and it may go along with your last comments about, um, I've read a thesis that, um, and I think from more than one Luther scholar, that um, his was more than just a reformation of the church at the time, that it was tied into politics and economics of the time, that Rome held sway politically over the German provinces. Okay. And that part of what he was doing was an effort to be free of the yoke of Rome politically, not just the church. Okay. And that initially he thought that the Jews would go along with him and, quote, see the light, and that didn't happen. And then... But then that fits with the disillusionment theory. Yes. And we just tried, we just argued against just the disillusionment. argued against that. So yeah. why, why, why do we want to go back to it? Why, how, what compels us to... Now broaden the disillusionment from the religious to the political domain. I'm trying to think to think through with you. Well, I'm trying to think through too, um, but we haven't really talked about the political or the economic domain. I don't think the Jews around him would have held such a position that this. In other words, there are two separate issues: expectations for Jews and expectations for Christianity in relation to Rome. For this argument to be extended to the Jews, you would have to assume that the Jews held enough social power to be an ally or a desired partner. And since that's not the case, I can't see how this argument would work. But I think it's out there. And, um, Question, it, it may be way out there. Way out, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Other questions? Depends where, because what happens? We we don't have we don't have a Germany at the time. We have various various uh, sub sub kingdoms and kingdoms and duchies and whatever, where he was very small. Other places not at all. So they're clustered in different places. So overall, in what is today Germany, there may have been many more, but not in his part of Germany. So, I think slightly earlier, Poland and Lithuania became one country. They, it was a renaissance for Jews at the time because of the, I guess, the Lithuanian queen, Mary. How did Martin Luther, you know, how did he feel about something to that extent when you had religious tolerance in, in that area at that time? And I, I can't quite remember the date. I, I, you know, 13 something. 1350 sounds a little early to yeah, me. 
I think it's much later. And since I don't know about it, let's let let's ask Professor Google. What do you want? What would you like to Google? Well, the the, the combination of Poland and Lithuania. What's the name of the Queen? Poland, Lithuania. Let's just look at when they come together. Polish, Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, 1791. So we're talking about two, 250 years later. Well, I guess Lutheranism didn't really take off then too much in that area because of Jesus. Well, whatever it is, this this it, this is you know it's not it's not the right period. Yeah, not that period. So are modern, like the neo-Nazis. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. In other words, are they are they going back to him? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. And that, of course, it's there isn't the same need. There isn't the same religious moorings, and they have a whole other tradition they can appeal to. What comes after their neo part? So no, I do not. That's a great question. I have not come across any examples of neo Nazis reviving Luther as a source of authority. That's great proof for my thesis. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. So today, that is it's. I, I don't know anybody who appeals to that part of Luther as a source of justification for anti Jewish sentiments. No. I, the, it only means I don't know, but I, I believe there isn't. Yeah. How was the late Luther functioning in other aspects of his life? Was there some kind of deterioration in his uh, mental status? A little or? bit. A little bit. Um, you know, Luther on his deathbed was convinced the Jews had po had poisoned him. So he act, even he went as far as ascribing his death to Jews. Um, I have a vague memory of reading of other expressions of decline, but I'm not enough of a Luther scholar, and I I I can't answer that right now with certainty. But there was, I do, if I'm not mistaken, Kaufman also talks about contextualizing this in, in, with other aspects of broad decline. It's not fresh enough in my memory. Uh, if you want, I can, I can stick around and, and hunt in my computers what, what I may have in notes. But I think possibly, but I don't want to vouch for it just because, remember, I'm just a learned dilettante. But he did have some psychological issues toward the end. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so tell us more, because I remember that. I, I don't know that much. I, I just know that I've read that he did. Yeah, yeah, but, but how did that, other than the psychological issues, did it manifest also in theology and in views he took in relation to other things? I don't remember that. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Um, are you familiar with a book that came out, I think, a few years before yours? By, and I can't remember their names. I just saw it on the Internet today. A couple of Lutheran scholars who wrote... Uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, I can't remember uh, Christy. Yes, yes. Christy. Uh, one of them. They both. They both wrote a recommendation from my book. Uh, and, um, just and, a second. I. I will find. Um, I don't have internet here. Uh, just a second. I, I'm going to go. Go. Let me go on my. I, I think one of their. There are two editors and one. Wait, Fortress one Press. Staff, Fortress Press and. Is that Wait, I'm going to find. I'll go to find that. Yeah, Fortress did my book, and I'll give you the names in a second because they are part of the blurbed. They're, they did the blurbs, and that's probably who you mean, Luther. That's the book. One of their last name starts with an S, I believe. Now that S I R S I. Just a like second. That. Don't don't ask me about names. I, I just live here. Mm -hmm. uh, just a second. Is it something that you that you are just 
I, I happen to be a Lutheran. I see. Who spends a lot of time. Brooke Schramm and Kiersey Stierna. Yes. That's, yes those are the two. Yeah. yeah. So they, they, they wrote a remarkable book on numerous levels. And then they have a whole, a whole section. So yes, I am familiar with them. And, they, and, and especially he, he was, he was exceptionally warm about and receiving. And then people looked at my list of endorsements and said, there isn't a single woman there. So I said, I asked him, would you come on as a, as a he, she team? And, and he agreed. So, so you know them? I know him. Yep. I know him. I just know that he's, um, a lot of Lutherans didn't really know about his anti-Semitic remarks until... Until it came out now. That The whole point, in other words, the fact that it's there doesn't mean that it's there in Lutheranism, per se, throughout the ages. In fact, I believe that um, the, the totality of Luther's public, or his, um, his writings, and he was a prolific writer, um, if I'm not mistaken, I remember reading that... Um, that that was not the, what he wrote um, towards the end of his life, um, The Jews and Their Lies, in which he recommends like the burning of synagogues and the burning of books. And, you know, I think he also recommends the burning bush, no? The burning bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just saw a cartoon about the burning bush yeah. um, in a book of Jewish humor in which um, Smokey the Bear appears with Moses and God says, I told you to come alone. <laughs> <laughs> He, he says to Smokey. Right. Yeah. No, he says to Moses, I told you to come alone. Yeah. But I think many Lutherans did not realize until maybe the last 20 years or so that there is these awful things. Wouldn't there like somewhere like 8 million people killed in a 30 year war just over all these religious. But it takes two to tango. Yeah. It's not because of Luther. It's a broader, broader political issue. He was dead by then. Yeah, I know, but wasn't it about his ideas? It was about battle between Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. And are Baptists, are they Luther, Lutherism? No. 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 They just like to splurge around in war. So, so Baptists are separate. They're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, in the nicest possible way, here we have a friend who knows about Roma, makes music with them, and can't keep apart Baptists and, and Lutherans. So, <laughs> right? But, that, but that's, that, to a certain extent, we're talking about boundaries of Jewish. So one of the major issues is the difficulty Jews have in keeping these, these, these different kinds of Christians apart. That's right. It, it, like what? I always ask people to explain to me, because there are so many different Category. Just too many, right? Yeah, yeah too many. Too many or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to know why. Yeah. There are certainly a lot. Yes. But the problem from, from a Jewish perspective, they all blur. So what happens is, I'll explain this to you also in Israel. The, la the, the Catholics get attacked for missionary work when they don't do missionizing work. Because most Jews can't keep apart Catholic or Protestant or evangelical or messianics, and therefore, to all, for them, they're all Christian. This is, this is, you know, when we talk about ignorance, this is one of the most fundamental expressions of ignorance, where you can't, where you can't keep apart the different identities. Well, and I think there are many Christians who 
Christians who don't understand the difference between Orthodox and Syriac right. and Reformed right. Jews. Except they're not out to missionize or kill them, well, which makes it easier. Right. Yeah, but, but there's no doubt that that reciprocity exists. I do know In fact, there's many Jews who can't keep them apart. I do know Mormonism isn't the same. So that I probably do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was once on a plane with a woman next to me who was Mormon, and she said she joined the church because there was a nice family atmosphere there, and she didn't know anything about the theology or, or anything else. But I'm willing to bet there's a good percentage in all religions of people who... That's pro that, first of all, that's probably true. And secondly, in case of Mormonism, nice... nice uh, nice family theology isn't enough because nice family atmosphere because family is core to their theology it's so core that basically what they try to do is to recreate families in heaven and to create recreate on earth certain relationships that resemble the celestial past and future or future relationships so therefore when you say when you say family it's even more loaded it's not just nice it's loaded in terms of its meaning Oh, so that's that's that 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 that's that's an impressive case of ignorance for someone who converted to Mormonism. But speaking of Mormons, um, do you all realize that um, you all would be considered Gentiles by the Mormons? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yes, yes, and no, because they also well, can yeah. they also consider themselves to be Israel, and therefore they're part of Israel, and therefore they do recognize us. So I'm not sure it's that simple. Everything there is complex. Yeah, so it's not exactly. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's as simple as that because they actually have a very positive view of Jews. Okay, guys, let's declare this over. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.